Thank you, Brother Wise. Good morning, St. Barnabas. So today we're reading from Zechariah, chapter 1. If you're like me, I wasn't too sure where this passage, where this book of the Bible was. <laughs> if you find Matthew, turn back to two, um, two books and then you'll find Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament. Alright, this is Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idol. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked him, What are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry that they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem declares the Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning everyone. It is so good to be with you today as you celebrate 10 years as a church. Um, As a college, we are truly grateful for St. Barnabas, as many of our students have found this church their home over the years. Uh, There are times where we have tried to say to them, listen, we have a policy that says you need to rotate as a student in every three, you can't be in one church for three years. And I remember some of the students protested and saying, no, we can't. We love St. Barnabas as our church. And I remember the faculty were saying, it's wonderful. That's a problem for students. They are not saying, when we can't, we can't wait to get out of that church. But they want to stay, as this has been the church that has actually helped them to grow, where they got to use their gifts, and they are deeply in love with the church. Uh, this church actually, it, it's only 10 years 
But there are not many churches that can boast this way that we have had two bishops out of this church uh, in the continent. And I think one of them is actually leading almost close to a million people within the continent. Uh, and it's from this church you had two principals of Bible College in this church. So I'm only excited to see what the Lord is going to do uh, as St. Barnabas continues to grow to the other te- uh, for another years uh, going forward. Uh, being a church that also is, is mostly student orientated, at times I know the challenges. Holy Trinity Gardens, we have those challenges because every three years you always feel like you're getting new people and you start again afresh and new. Uh, but in those times when you are challenged and discouraged, just think of what God is doing through you as you look at the continent, at the harvest field, of how many people have been in this church who are actually serving you faithfully and who have managed to come to this church where they've been trained to use the active. So that's a wonderful privilege I think we have as a church to actually partner with God in what he's doing in the continent. As a GWCPC faculty, we are truly grateful uh, for what you do for our students and how you welcome them and how you have loved them and served them over the years. Um, so if you can please open your Bibles to Zechariah uh, chapter 1 from verse 7, uh, 7 to 21. Uh, we actually read from verse 17 because we're going to focus there. And I'm glad the part about four horns were not read. We'll refer to them in passing. Uh, I, I, hope, uh, <laughs> I, I hope as you come through Zechariah, you will start being familiar, at least today, as we look through the book, how to read the book. But let me pray for us as we look at God's word together. Lord, we give you thanks that you speak to us through your word. And Lord, I pray that you will help me to explain your word faithfully and clearly today. Lord, help us to understand that you are God who sees and that you are not blind to the to suffering of your people. And that, Lord, you will bring everything right in the end. And Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your love for us that those who belong to you have hope in the midst of this difficult world. And Lord, we pray be with us now as we live in your word. Amen. Now, I once heard a story um, about a group of Christians in North Korea uh, who suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. The story I had said that uh, one day in a primary school, a wonderfully dressed man came and show the children like a Bible and say, listen, if you, if does anyone have a book like this in your family? And if you do and you show us where we can find the book, you'll win a prize. Now the children, out of excitement, raise their hand, the little girl, and say, yes, in our family we have a book like that and I'll go and show you where the book was hidden. And then, of course, the girl takes, not knowing these actually are the government officials, they are soldiers who want to put an end to Christianity in North Korea. So the young girl was excited, she took the soldiers home, and when they arrived in the house, they discovered the Bibles, and it turned out this was actually one of those house churches that was uncovered. And the people, the church, the father and the mother who were the pastors of this church, and the members of the church were all lined up, made to lie down on the street, 
as the army tank was going to drive over them, over their heads. Now the story goes that the Christians started singing praises to God as they were facing death, and as the tank actually went over each head, people did not stop singing up until all of them died. Now, when I thought of that story, because of two little girls, my heart went out to that little girl about how will they live the rest of their life knowing that actually my actions caused the death of my family. Can you imagine that burden, the guilt to go through life that way? And I remember, I thought it in my mind, started saying, but why would God allow such a thing? For that girl to carry such a burden. Is God blind? Does God care? If God is not blind, if God cares, why is he not doing anything about it? I'm not sure if you have experienced that in your own life. When things go wrong, when life is hard, where you start to question whether, is God blind to your suffering? Does God care about your difficulties? If he is not blind and he cares, why does he not do anything about it? Now the book of Zechariah is actually going to tell us that God cares and that he is aware of what is going on in the world and that he is going to do something about what is happening in the world. Now, a little bit of a recap, I know that as a visiting preacher, when you go to churches and then you preach something on the book of Zechariah that many people have not had sermons on, that people quickly forget. So this is for the benefit of those also maybe who missed the first sermon. So the last time I was here, we said that uh, we looked at the reason why we need to study the book of Zechariah. We looked at three reasons why we have to study the book of Zechariah. First of all is that the book is about Jesus. We cannot fully understand the events surrounding Jesus' death on the cross if it was not of the book of Zechariah. The other thing we saw, we studied the book of Zechariah because it's relevant for us today. Uh, It's relevant for us today because of the time of history that it was written into. Uh, The book was was addressed to the people who lived in a period that is marked by uh, now but not yet. You know that in-between period where God started acting out, fulfilling his promises, but yet they are not fully materialized. A similar spiritual period as ourselves. The third reason we said, we said we studied the book of Zechariah because it is the word of God. And last time I was here, we saw that at the heart of the first message, which is the first six verses of the book of Zechariah, is the theme of repentance. If God is coming, get your house in order. Uh, if God is coming, make sure you'll find you waiting for him. In fact, God's return is paramount to our text today, and we read about it in verse 16, which says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem declares the Lord Almighty. As we look at our text today, I think one of the things I'd like us to look at is how do we approach all this vision, a bridge of a view, because we are going to see the horns, 
you are going to see men on the horses, and you put, if you type on, on, on Google, I know the, the colors of the men, of the, the colors of the horses in Zechariah. Let me tell you, you might be tempted to get something stiff afterwards, because you might go crazy. And if you type about the four horns, People are going to tell you the one horn represents America, the other one represents this thing. You'll also go crazy. But there's something much more simple about how we can understand the visions of Zechariah. Uh, I mean, we are beginning this curious part of the book, which is about the visions, but there's a, a formula in how we can follow that helps us to see the visions. And there's a handout you are given that has eight visions of Zechariah. If you can please look at that now. I'll just explain it to you. That handout is more like a key. You know when you do a puzzle, you need those keys, the picture, and how everything fits together. That handout basically is going to help you to see all of that. Although there are eight visions that Zechariah received that are recorded in verses 1 to 6, at first glance, when you look at these visions, uh, they are confusing, and it's hard to see how they all fit together. But there's a logic in how they fit together. You see, the first three visions, which is chapter 1, verse 17, uh, to uh, verse 7 to 17, and chapter 1, verse 18 to 21, and chapter 2, actually correspond in terms of the movement to the last three visions of the book that you have there. The first three visions which ends at the end of chapter 2, speaks of God and his people imminent return to Jerusalem, while the last three visions, which are found in Zechariah 5, verse 6 to 8, speaks of the wickedness being banished, moving out of Jerusalem, where it will actually be housed elsewhere. There you will see those fascinating visions of the flying stall, a woman in a basket, and a horses pulling out chariots. So one of the things, if God is going to come to Jerusalem, death cannot exist with sin. Therefore, when God comes, which is the first three vision looking forward to, then the last three vision tell us when God comes, therefore sin has to go as far from Jerusalem as possible. And that's what the last three vision tell us. So there's a movement towards Jerusalem in the first three visions, and then there's a movement away from Jerusalem where, uh, where a house for iniquity will be built in Babylon, which is far from Jerusalem. God is going to return to Jerusalem, and sin will be removed from Jerusalem. Then there are these two key visions that are in the middle of it, which are about the restoration of priesthood and the temple. Did you see that? The, the two visions that we find in chapter 4 and 5. These two middle visions are central elements of the vision. If God is going to come and live among his people who are sinful, there needs to be a provision in how sin is going to be dealt with. And that's what the middle vision of Zechariah are all about, those two chapters where the priesthood will be restored and the temple will be restored. Remember Israel during this time we saw that was in exile and for 70 years people were not able to offer sacrifices. They could not access the temple in Jerusalem. And therefore the middle visions, the two visions, 
assuring us that is going to be restored for God's people. So, I hope that gives you a key, at least when you read the book of Zechariah, now going forward, that you understand there's a movement A, towards Jerusalem, and a movement from Jerusalem to Babylon. That movement is regards to sin. The other one is regard to God coming to Jerusalem. And then the middle visions is a provision God has made for His people in how they can live with Him and have a relationship with Him. Now, let's focus now in our verse, from verse 7 onward. And I want us to look at the various characters that are presented here. And then we can see how, as you look at these characters, we are actually going to get another key in how we read the book of Zechariah all together. Verse 7 we read, On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Belechiah, son of Edo. This is the second time the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, and it is three months after the first word. Did you see that in verse 7? In verse 1 of chapter 1, we are told that in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Well, in verse 7 tells us, on the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shebet, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. So it has been three months after the first message that Zechariah received from the Lord, but nothing has really changed for God's people. The first message was, repent or the Lord is going to punish you. And the people have repented, but not a lot has really changed in that period of three months. They are back in the land, as it were, but they are not free. They are still under the control of the foreign king. Did you notice that? Their calendar is still marked by the foreign king. There's a sense that things have not really changed. So the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah for the second time. In fact, this time around we have a fixed date of when this day happened. It's the 15th of February, 519 B.C. So that's the exact date we know Zechariah received the vision. I know that is confusing when you look at the Hebrew calendar, but in our calendar, that's how it will have been. On the 15th of February, just after Valentine's, in the year 15519, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah for the second time. And this time around, when the Lord of the Lord comes, it comes accompanied by a vision. The first vision we find in verse 7 to 17. In this vision, there are three characters. They each played a crucial role. And I want us to first look at these characters and see what do these characters reveal to us about God's message to Zechariah. Well, the first character, we see this uh, in the first vision, is the prophet Zechariah himself. Sometimes you tend to forget the messenger and look at the scary part. But Zechariah plays a crucial role in this vision. The first thing we read in verse 8 is that, During the night I had a vision. This phrase literally reads, During the night I saw, 
And what did Zechariah see? There before him was a man mounted on a red horse. Which introduces us to our second character, but we'll return to this character later. He was standing, this second character, among the metal trees in the ravine. Behind him were red and brown horses. Oh, now this is where Google goes crazy. Right? Oh, the brown horse represents this, the red horse represents that. I hope we won't do that this morning. So the first vision, Zechariah sees this man on a horse, and behind him there are other horses. Not just three horses, by the way. White can tell you the Hebrew here is plural. He refers to horses that are red, brown, and white. So Zechariah sees a lot and lot of horses behind this man. They are of different colors, but the colors that are given is red, brown, and white. And our game will return to this a little bit later. The first thing I want us to observe, though, about the first character, which is Zechariah, and I'm grateful for Zechariah, is that he is clueless, just like all of us. Did you notice that in the text? Look at verse 9. Zechariah does not even know he's a prophet. He doesn't go there, oh, I know this, I know that. No, no, he's not that clever kid in class. He's the one that is actually quite slow, like all of us, right? Look at what he says in verse, I ask, what are these, my Lord? So he sees horses, he sees a man on the horse, and he's thinking, what is happening here? And then go, okay, I have a tour guide here. What are these, my Lord? He asks the same question, even on the second vision in verse 19. What are these? The greatest thing about Zechariah's cluelessness is that it helps us to understand the vision. The significance of the parts of the vision. It helps us not to speculate about what the various things mean, because Zechariah has asked the question, and actually the, the angel of the Lord gives him answers in order for us how to understand that. So Zechariah is like that student in class. You know when you know you don't understand, and you think in your mind, this is a stupid question I don't want to ask but there's a student who's bold enough to ask the stupid question that you all were thinking inside. Zechariah is that person. He should have known better, some people will say. He's, after all, a prophet. He should have known this stuff, right? But the wonderful thing with Zechariah, he's actually quite bold and say, Lord, I don't understand you. Which is helpful for us. And this introduces us to our third character, uh, in, in this story of this. Remember, there's a first character, Zechariah. There's a second character among the little trees riding, uh, riding a horse. And then the third character who dominates the book of Zechariah. And this character is the angel of the Lord. Now, these two angels of the Lord, there are two, therefore, what we see here is that there are two angels of the Lord in vision. There's one who's standing among the metal trees who's described in verse 1, the angel, and then there's another one who's described as the angel who was talking to me. Did you see that in verse 9? And then he said, I will show you what they are. What set this angel apart from the other one is a description that this one is the one that talks to Zechariah, while the other one is just a scary character on the horse among the trees with lots of horses behind him. And this angel 
is always described as the angel speaking to me. We see that in verse 9. We also see it again in verse 14a. The angel who was talking to me said, and then again in verse 19, the angel who was speaking to me. So this angel, the job of this angel is throughout the book of Shnekara is like that of a tour guide. You know, have you been on the red bus? And then you listen to the tour guide, the stuff they tell you that you did not even know as a Cape Townian, even though you lived here for years. And then they tell you, oh, do you know why that is called 12 apostles? Well, it, apparently it happened one day, this guy was so drunk. And then it was, uh, so that's what this angel does. He's the tour guide that explains everything to the Zechariah about the meanings of the vision. And this is an angel that helps us to understand the significance of all these visions. Zechariah sometimes addresses this angel as my Lord. The reason why Zechariah sometimes addresses the angel as my Lord is because the angel of the Lord is God's special representative who speaks and acts on behalf of the Lord. Almost as though God, God uh, was in a visible form. It's not like Zechariah is worshipping this angel, but it's actually because he's a representative of God, gives him the due honor. The third, the third character that we've seen in this vision is actually our second character. This is the one that I want us to focus on now. So are you with me so far? I know it's confusing, right? So there are three characters. The one is Zechariah, right? And then there's a scary man on the horse we are going to talk to about now. That's the second character. And then the third character we saw is our tour guide, the angel of the Lord. So now I want us to go to the scary man on the horse, the man on the red horse. This was, I'm going to look at this as a third character, even though he is introduced as a second character in verse 8. Verse 8 reads, A man mounted on the red horse who was standing among the metal tree in the ravine. And then behind this man is a multitude of horses in different colors. During Zechariah's time, the horses were considered noble and powerful animals that indicated military power, and they were very important for any army. You wanted to conquer the pharaohs of Egypt, they had their chariots, their horses. But there's something strange about these horses, this army of horses. It's actually not the one that imposes military strength and power. It's not like the American nuclear powers or Russian nuclear powers. These are actually spies, which is strange. Because not in Zechariah, what do you want? We have an enemy in Jerusalem. We want them to be destroyed. And there you are in a vision. What do you see? Horses. Yes, right? We are going to go and conquer. And then you realize, no, that's, that's not the kind of a division we are dealing with here. It's actually spies. Not the invading army, but almost like FBI and CIA on steroids in those days. And we see this in verse 11, uh, in verse 10, when the men explain the significance of the horses, that these are the horses, the ones the Lord has sent out throughout the earth. Meaning these are the patrolling horses and this was again very common in the ancient world. The Persian Empire used to send out the spies throughout the world 
to make sure people do not feel rebellion against the empire. The CIA equivalent of today. You know, my wife, we, we, we laugh a little bit. America knows everything. Uh, my kids the other day were pestering me. Dad, when are we going to Disneyland? I'm like, I'm broke. Yeah, when, when can we go? Just tell us a year. So I'm like, okay, how old are you? Okay, the other one, the one who's persistent is five. I'm like, when you are eight, my darling, I'm still working on my mind. Where am I going to get money when she's eight? But that seems far enough, right? I'm like, when you are eight, my darling, we'll go to Disneyland. And then, what, you know what was interesting? I go on my phone, guess what ad comes up? Disneyland. I'm like, what's happening? So I thought, oh, maybe it's coincidence. My phone is not spying on me, right? And then on Friday, I tell my wife, man, yo, it's been a while since we had a Gatsby. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And we are, we are debating, you know, which one is the best game? You know, like, you know, Sunrise, Gatsby, Immobile, I think those are best Gatsby's. And then, like, oh, yeah, right. Now, I check my Google. My Google, Uber Eats, right? Uber Eats did not have Sunrise before that conversation. I go to my calendar, my Google, but it's sunrise was there and they're special. And I'm like, man, they, they, they can hear everything, right? They see everything, right? So these are the spies of the Lord who sees everything throughout the world. You see, for the Israelites, the temptation is to think that because we are in exile, God has forgotten about us. Because we are away, God doesn't know what is happening. And the message for us that like, arise now, God knows. He has his spies everywhere, and they are checking. And he has the advanced uh, satellite surveillance system. So, now, what did these spies find in the world? Did they find Rihanna debating, lying to his three-year-old, uh, five-year-old daughter about Disneyland? Or what did they find? Look at what these spies found in the world who are reporting now to this chief spy officer. Let's, let's name him, uh, who's that CIA, uh, FBI big guy? Hoover, right? Okay, Edgar Hoover. So this is Hoover on the red horse. And then look at what these spies have found. They reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the mortal tree, verse 11. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Now, for many of us, we'll be celebrating, right? Isn't that wonderful? The world has peace. That is not a good kind of a peace. It might seem great that the world is at peace, but this is a false peace. It is a kind of peace that we see out throughout the world today, a peace without God. Remember, God's people have no peace. God's people are oppressed. They are calendar, they are using foreign kings to mark their years. But yet the Lord, the world seems to be at peace. As the Africans sometimes traveling to some of the developed countries, you look around like, man, everything seems to be peaceful. There seems to be peace here, isn't it? Up until you start talking to people and you realize they don't want anything about God. And then you ask, is this real peace? Or is this false peace? And you can actually see this in verse 12. The angel of the Lord says, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem? 
and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years. You see, the problem here is that the world is at peace, but God's people have not experienced peace. For 70 years, God's people have been in exile, while the world seems to be peaceful and prosperous. There's a contradiction in picture that is given in verse 11 and 12. Peace in the world without God, and God's people have God with no peace. The world seems to be having God's blessings, but God's people to have none of them. Have you seen that sometimes? Where people seem to be doing well. You know, there are times where I am envious to use the words of the psalm of those who don't know the Lord. Their marriage seems to be doing well. Their kids are well behaving. They, they, everything seems to be nice. Meanwhile, sometimes for us as Christians, everything seems to be a struggle. Now the angel of the Lord raises a question. How long, Lord, will you hold mercy from your people? Recently I heard a story about the employee who worked in a particular company and his boss had a drinking problem. And the boss had not been doing his responsibilities. He did not order the stock. They are running a restaurant, uh, which is a franchise. So the boss did not order things uh, that were supposed to be there, and the clients were starting to complain. And this employee was a Christian who is loved by everyone. In fact, people are coming to visit because of him. The boss used him as a scapegoat. You see, the boss knew that I powers, I have friends in regional office. No one will believe your word while you are nobody compared to me. And he was getting away with it. And I remember meeting this employee in tears. And he was saying, what's the point of it all? Does really God care? I've been faithfully serving him and being honest in everything I've done. I've not caught promotion for seven years. People who are less qualified than me are being promoted. And now this is even worse, that I'm being accused of something I've not done. And then the question was, is God blind? If God is not blind, what is he doing about it? And then I couldn't help but to think of Zechariah 1 verse 7. How long... Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold your mercy from your people? And then, of course, God is going to tell us, Zachariah, I'm not blind. I see everything, and I have an action plan. And we see God's action plan, in fact, in verse 14. Then the angel of the Lord, who was speaking to me, said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I'm very angry with the nation that feels secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with punishment. There are two things that the Lord is telling Zechariah and us via him this morning. Is that the Lord, God loves and cares for his people. Did you notice the word? I am very jealous for Jerusalem. And Zion in verse 14. The, la- the language of jealous is not a bad kind of jealous. You know, when someone is a stalker. That, that is not a possessive jealous in that way. 
but it's the language of love. The language that is used here is that love and protection. And we get a clear picture of this in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, which reads, For this is what the Lord Almighty says, After the gracious one has sent me against the nation that I plundered plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eyes, I, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slave will plunder them. Did you see how God described his people? The apple of his eye. It's like how he described your children. And God says, even though I've raised up nations to punish Jerusalem, I'll also hold them accountable in how they exercise that punishment over them. So that's why when God says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem, it means I love Jerusalem and Zion. And these are my people, I'm going to protect them and I'm going to deal with their enemies and those who oppress them. And that's the first message the Lord tells Zechariah through. After giving him the report of the world, the spies, that the world is at peace but God's people are not at peace, God says to Zechariah, do not worry. I know the world has false peace, but I will give you peace because I love you as my children. God loves you. God is not blind to your pain and suffering. He knows and sees the injustices you have experienced and is going to intervene. Isn't that wonderful? When you're going through hard times, to know that God is going to intervene. The second message that Zechariah is to deliver, according to Zechariah 1.15, is that God is going to deal with the nations. He says, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with their punishment. You see, the problem with false peace is that it makes us feel secured. My friends, do not mistake false peace with real peace and God's blessings. The two are different. People might amass wealth in an unjust manner and hire bodyguards to protect themselves and they can even run to Dubai and say they are not touchable in worldly standards. But God will deal with them. Everyone will account in the end. And if if people are not in Jesus, they will receive what is due to them. Isn't that a wonderful peace of mind for a Christian? That even when the cost of the land may not seem to be on your side, that actually God is going to deal and bring justice in this world. God is going to deal with his people by blessing them, on the other hand. Look at verse 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be built, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. I mean, in the midst of this, I mean, it's mind-boggling, right? Zechariah, God's spies are coming and telling you the bad news. Everyone is happy except you guys. Everyone has everything right. And then the answer is, is God blind to our pain and suffering? 
God said, no, I'm not blind, I'm coming. God, he sees what's going on. He knows the injustices, but he's going to return to Jerusalem with mercy. And there my house will be built. I, I mean, so now when you think of God's blessings, the first thing many of us think about is material possessions. But these things, actually, they rot. They disappear. You don't take them with you. And that's the reality, right? I would love to drive a Ferrari, hint, hint, if anyone has a Ferrari. <laughs> but the reality is, when you die, it will be left behind. And you'll be worried whether your 16-year-old son is going to crash it or not. But you cannot take with you. But one of the blessings God gives to his people, did you notice that? It's himself. It's to first give you himself. And then prosperity will follow later. Isn't that wonderful? God blesses us by giving us himself. And friend, he has already done that in the person of Jesus Christ. Our Emmanuel, God with us. He has, shown us, he has shown us mercy when he died on the cross. The promises that are promises. God has done that. He gave us himself and he died on the cross. Instead of me being punished for my sin, Jesus came and died for us to show me mercy so that I can belong to God. More than that, he also promised us our heavenly Jerusalem, to use the words of Galatians 4.26. We were looking forward to the time that we see it promised here in Zechariah, in Zechariah where it will be ultimately fulfilled, the time that John describes in the following words in Revelation 21 verse 14. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you see how God fulfills his promises to Zechariah? He came in the person of Jesus and gave us himself, but not only that, he promises us prosperity. In Zechariah we read, my towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Where will that come from in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns? And that is our hope when we go through suffering. God is not blind to your suffering. God is not blind to your pain. No matter how much opposition comes out, God is going to deal with his enemies. Now friends, this is the hope that we have, those of us who belong to Jesus. That whatever happens in this world, like those Christians in North Korea, who died singing while facing the most gruesome death, they knew that actually God was not blind. 
They knew what awaited them, even though they were dying in a most horrific manner. That they will be comforted by the Lord Jesus. In fact, if you have to see that girl, that's the hope I'll tell her. That Jesus has paid for it. Your guilt, the heavy burden you feel, and all you have to do is to trust in him. And you will see your parents once more. But the flip side though, is that for some of us are feeling quite secure this morning. You might be feeling quite secure by your bank balance. You know there are certain times of the month, it's the 24th today. Mine just comes in within two hours, I feel depression immediately. Some of us might be feeling secure by our balance. Some of us might be feeling secure by the material blessings we have. My friend, if it's not Jesus, that's false peace. If God is not at the center of it all, you are all going to lose it. But one thing we can have full assurance to is in this God who speaks to us, who reveals himself to us, and who has given us himself. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks that you are not lying in the sufferings that we see around us in the world, and that, Lord, you actually will act in justice and in mercy. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have not left us alone, but you revealed yourself to us, and that you have given us yourself by dying on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we give you thanks that you did not leave us as weak as orphans, but you gave us your Holy Spirit who helps us during our time of need. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you, and that all these promises that we have in you, that we know will come to true, that, Lord, you will help us to hold on to that hope. And Lord, we ask all of this in your name. Amen.